Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Good morning. It's great to see you. Thanks to all of you for joining us online. So Jeremy preached last week. I'm really thrilled he got to preach. And I know uh, I got to spend a little bit of time peeking in on the children's ministry last week. So uh, I didn't get to hear most of his message. But I hear Jeremy invited you to a Genesis 17 discipleship group, which he said I was starting, whose initiation rite is, of course, based on Genesis 17 circumcision. We had a great men's event yesterday. <laughs> It was really great. We had uh, Joe did a fantastic job teaching. We had great food. N- nothing, nothing happened. <laughs> it was just a lot of fun, and we got to pray with each other and support each other at the end, and it was just a really good time. I also heard that Jeremy last week uh, kind of threw under the bus one of our favorite characters who's listed in Hebrews Hall of Fame of Faith t- calling Abraham a jerk. So honestly, I mean, Abraham's, you know, cowardly, passive, sinful behaviors at times did really show that sometimes he did act like in a jerk manner, just like you and just like me. So I think I effectively just called us all jerks. Did you hear that? (laughs) In that, Jeremy uh, was pointing out a profound truth, I think, about God. The story of the Bible from beginning to the end is about the gospel. It's always about the gospel, the good news that God loves us, God is pursuing us, He is patient with us, and our only response needed is to trust God's Word, trust His promises, and follow Him. See, even in jerkiness, Abraham did something that was amazing, and we're going to talk about that today. As we look more at Abraham's story, we're going to start talking about the the backdrop of Abraham is actually a story that we kind of skipped over. If you've been doing the chronological reading of the Bible with us, you, you ran into it in Genesis chapter 11. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is, it comes after Noah and the whole restart, and we see yet again that the people are trying to meet their deepest desires in themselves and not in God. I mean, the primary issue in the story of the Tower of Babel is actually found in the actual definition of what the word itself, Babel, means. It means the gate of God. And the the essence of that story is that they are building this massive tower to attain to God, to get to His gate. And it's not to be closer to God. The story makes that clear. The reason why these people are making this tower is actually seen in in Genesis 11.4. It says, let us make a name for ourselves. In other words, let us build the tower so high no one can see this top and everybody will think we are like God. I mean, building a magnificent tower, there's nothing wrong with that. God loves us creating beautiful, grand things out of His creation. The story isn't about God digging humanity for wanting to have great success. God wants every single one of us to experience prosperity and success. The issue is humanity is uniting together in that story to exalt themselves against God and above God. And this is about people who were marked with pride and a lust for power, and which is a continued struggle for us today. I mean, you and I, we all have talents. You're good at teaching or whatever it is you're good at or finance, and you can either use those abilities to make a name for yourself 
or you can use the abilities God gave you to honor God. So the big question in a lot of our life is, does, does what you do glorify yourself, maximize your own bank account, build your own ego, or do your strengths and talents help build a culture and a community that honors God? In whatever vocation you do, in whatever activity you do, what you do and for whom you do it, what are you, who, for whom are you building in that effort? See, sin is, a t- is an attempt in us to find in something or someone else that which we have lost in God, which can only be rightly found in God. They are trying to get back something they once had with people in this story of Babel, but they're doing it in the wrong way in the wrong place. The word Babel and the word actually is the same word used for Babylon. And throughout Scripture from this earliest reference all the way to the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, Babylon and Babel becomes a symbol for man uniting against God, the epitome of wickedness. In the Tower of Babel story, the people initially had one language and God in His mercy restrains evil in that moment, miraculously confusing the languages of the people, creating many languages, forcing the people or making the people motivated to scatter all over the earth in different tribes, different cultures, different languages, different nations. And later in that chapter, we see out of that dispersion of people coming a genealogy that leads us to Abraham. We see God choose this old fatherless man to work through in order to reach and restore the entirety of humanity. That's the basic promise. A man with many flaws, right? We saw that last week. But the way Abraham responds to God and lives differently begins to reverse the pride of the story of the Tower of Babel. Abraham is invited by God to live a life that's meaningful and bigger than himself and he trusts God and his promise and thereby models faith in God's grace and his promise in a way that can inspire each and every one of us here to live more faith-filled lives. So as we've been doing our readings each week, I love how God repeatedly shows us uh, that he is a God of good promises and that's how he initiates relationship with us. Genesis 3, at the very fall of humanity, the first thing God does is he comes with a promise of salvation and care for us. Again, in the stories of Cain and Abel and Seth and Job and others, we see God repeatedly coming to make promises. He pursues us to give us hope. Even in the midst of difficult consequences of sin and brokenness, he pursues us and gives us promises. With Abraham, God comes with a promise once again and, and taps into a desire that I think for all of us is there to have this really meaningful, well-lived life. The promise we see is in Genesis 12. We'll read it in a moment. As Romans and Galatians teach us, this promise that we're going to read to Abraham is actually a promise to all who follow God. So it says this, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you all families of the earth shall be blessed. So God says, I promise to fulfill those desires that you have, that you and I have, for a meaningful life well lived. 
I mean, this text says he's going to give us this deep sense of fulfillment and security. When he says, make you a great nation and tribe, he's saying, I'm going to give you rich, deep, beautiful relationships in this earth. And he also says he wants us to have a great reputation. When he says, make your name great, he wants you to have a sense of success, a sense of value in the eyes of others. That's important. He wants us to have those needs met. And he wants us to have eternal significance. He says he wants to make us a blessing throughout the entire world, a legacy, something that lasts. That's part of the promise of Abraham. And that's a promise to every single one of us. Today I want to look further at some key highlight moments in Abraham's life. And and since Hebrews puts him in the hall of faith and, and throughout Scripture, we see he is described as the father of Israel. And Paul states that he is the father of all who believe, Jew or Gentile. So how did Abraham get to this place where Romans says about him, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? I mean, Abraham's faith, not always his moral character, but his faith, give us each of us an insight into how we can live and see the desires that God has for us, the desires of our heart more fully met. So Abraham's faith, we're going to look at it through two things. First one is how Abraham's story teaches us the foundation of life and faith. And, and what we're going to actually see as we look at this is that there's that foundation of life and faith, that great faith, is really more about who God is and what God does than actually what we are and what we do. And then we're going to look at the essence of the response that God wants from us, what, what it means for us to respond and actually become people of great faith. And then we're going to conclude with a very short look at the ultimate goal of God and of following God. So first, first question, how does Abraham's story teach us the foundation of faith? So being a hall of fame faith person actually begins with understanding what it means to be in covenant with God. Now, We've talked about covenant before. Wendy did a whole message on this same Genesis 15 passage four or five, maybe six years ago. I can't remember which. And what we're talking about today completely revolutionized her faith. So let me, let me give you a short introduction to covenant and how it's understood in Bible times, and then we'll jump into the text in Genesis 15 in a moment. So covenant, a covenant relationship describes a relationship that is more than legally binding as a contract. But it's also more accountable and deeper than just a deep personal relationship. It's actually a blending of both law and love. Covenant is, I think, a challenging word in our culture, in a culture where, we, where the emphasis is on my own happiness, my fulfillment, my rights. Relationships oftentimes in our world come second to what I really want. In today's world... Marriage is too often between two people who say, I will be what, you sh- what I should be as long and, and as to the degree that you are also what you should be. And uh, to the degree that you are not what you should be, uh, then, you know, at some point I'm out. But in a covenant relationship, two people say, I will be what I should be whether you are what you should be or not. I think the traditional marriage vows actually illustrate this more closely than many of the vows that people write today. And I'm, not, I'm fine with people writing vows, and that's not the point. I'm just trying to make a, a covenant point right here now. The, the traditional vows are, I take you to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward. There's no ending point, right? It's not for a certain time period. 
for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health. In other words, no matter what changes, for good and bad, whether you are as successful and good of a financial provider in life as I'd like or not, whether you are healthy, fit, and beautiful, or whether you are sick and pain and stink, whether you are, whether we have our dreams of riches and our dreams of travel happen, or whether we end up living on the street, I will love and cherish you till death do us part. According to God's holy law, in the presence of God, I make this covenant or this vow. Now, that's understandable why many people getting married on their wedding day right before vows, they have jitters and they're nervous, right? That's scary. That's a scary, vulnerable thing. As you ponder those words, you can easily see covenant only works best if both parties make the same agreement. I mean, if only one person says, I will be what I should be, whether you are what you should be or not, and the other one doesn't make the same agreement, then all too often life goes awry, pain occurs, insecurity, bitterness, and, and frankly, sometimes even abuse happens. But if, that, if you get in a relationship where both are saying, you are more important than my needs. You are more important than the things being easier and better in life. You are, I will be committed to this relationship and to loving you with all that I am, even if you are not meeting my needs. In fact, even if you are hurting my needs, I'm going to be committed to love you. If both of you enter into that kind of covenant, then you have a great recipe for a great relationship whoever you have that kind of a covenant love with, whether it's in marriage or family or your children or with a boss or with your friends, I mean, having those, those are the relationships that are the most profoundly impacting we ever experience in life. For those relationships, you willingly sacrifice sleep and money to help them. And it's like a relationship with your children where they may absolutely drive you crazy during the day, but when they fall asleep or everything calms down, you just want to sit back and go, oh, aren't they so adorable? I mean, we go from absolute crazy to absolute adorable in a moment sometimes, don't we? And there isn't anything more worthwhile to us in life than having that kind of love and that kind of even self-sacrificial giving in our life that we think of towards our kids a lot of times. Here's the point. If the most profound relationships we have, the ones that carry the deepest levels of joy and meaning and beauty are covenantal relationships then your relationship with God has to be covenantal as well. In fact, that's exactly what God asks of us. God only relates to us in terms of covenant. God made covenants with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. The gospel of Jesus is actually an invitation to join in covenant with God. And I love how God reveals Himself in the Bible. In almost all of the stories of the characters of the Bible, God comes, like we said, with promise first. For, For Abraham, we see it in Genesis 12. And then leads them to covenant. We see that in Genesis 15, a couple chapters later. Promise first, and then God leads us to commitment. So Genesis 15, 8 reads this. But Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it. So what's he talking about possessing? He's actually referring back to chapter 12, the promise of the, the entire promise that God has made to him to make his name great, to make him a blessing to all the nations, to possess the land that God has promised to give him. And then God says to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat's three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. It starts to get weird from here. 
And he bought him all these, brought him all these, th- 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 uh, he, he, he brought all these things, he cut them in half and laid them half over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Don't know why, maybe they're too small, maybe his knife was too thick, I don't know. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And the sun was going down, and a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be uh, servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in the good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites, who they were, gonna, they were promised their land, is not yet complete. That's a major statement about God's patience. 400 years putting up with sin, hoping they would change. In our reading plan, we already read of Joseph and then Israel's family, the whole family going down to Egypt. And this last week, we were getting into the story of the ending of the 400 years that the text talks about. The covenant story continues in verse 17. It says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. So, What's the deal with the gross, weird, animal-cutting stuff going on? I mean, God said to Abram, I will bless you. Abe says, "Uh, how can I be sure? And God says, here's what you need to do. You need to kill some animals. You need to cut them in half and lay the pieces in a row with room to walk the gauntlet, the blood gauntlet, right down the middle of the two halves. That's what's going on here. While this confuses us and maybe offends us, this is completely clear to Abraham, and actually it's a tremendous honor that God is asking him this. It is the making of a covenant between God and Abraham. Now what often happened in the making of a covenant was that the two parties in the covenant would walk through the middle middle of the slain animals saying, I will do my part of the covenant, covenant, and if I do not, may I be cut in two like these animals. Kind of makes your covenant commitment a little serious. Can you imagine a wedding covenant? You know, a stream of blood coming down the aisle, walking down. Forget the white carpet, you know. Kind of makes it serious, right? When the covenant was between a chief and a king or a servant, most often only the servant walked through the animals saying, I will do my part, and if not, I will be cut in two, like these animals. Rarely did the king walk through. Abraham knew God was asking him to prepare for a covenant between God and himself. But then something profound and strange happens that vividly vividly illustrates the essence of faith and relationship with God. As you read the story, Abraham is waiting for God to show up to seal the covenant. He's trying to keep the birds away from this nice little delicate meal he put on the ground out there. And then it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot... And then a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now clearly in this, God is revealing his presence to him in a way that Abraham is seeing this smoking pot and this flaming torch. They're symbols of God's presence passing through the animals. Now once that's done, it simply says, and God had made the covenant. So we know that he finished the covenant in making that act. God walks through the sacrifice, not once, and then followed by Abraham, 
God goes through the sacrifice twice and doesn't allow Abraham to walk through it. I mean, this is unheard of. It's amazing that God would walk through even once and then not force the servant to walk through, the one with the clearly inferior character whose word and character is suspect already. I mean, remember, Abraham wasn't even strong enough to stand up to a king and say, hey, she's my wife, not my sister, to protect his wife. And he was so fearful that she would, he would be killed because she was so beautiful. Just thus Jeremy's jerk statement. He was a jerk in that moment, right? Do you understand what this means? Instead of both going through and saying, I'll make this covenant, if I don't fulfill my part, then I'll be cut in two and cursed like these animals. God goes through twice. He promises to fulfill the covenant that He is making from His perspective. And He says, if He does not fulfill His word, then may He be cursed just like these animals. And then God goes through again, essentially saying, I am going to fulfill the promise on your behalf, Abraham. And if you don't live up to the part of the covenant like you should, then I will take the curse upon myself. See, I'm sure Abraham was, was thinking, God, I never thought you'd break your promise. I mean, no, the problem is with me. How can I ever fulfill a covenant with you? How can I ever be good enough with you? God, I know I can't do this. I will let you down. You'll get tired of me. And after, after the many times I've already broken promises and the times I've lacked courage, I know that's going to happen. But see, God already knew that about Abraham. He knows it about us too. And God didn't let Abraham walk through and make that commitment. God walked through in Abraham's place saying, Abraham, may I be cut off like these animals if I don't do my part. And if you don't do your part, may I be cut off like these animals. And see, this is exactly what God did in coming to earth as Jesus and going to the cross. He fulfills this very covenant in Genesis 15. He didn't let us pay for our sin Instead, in fact, he didn't even let us commit to not sinning. He chose to take the penalty of our failure upon himself, saying, I know you are weak. I love you. I forgive you. I take your penalty for you. Paul talks about this in Galatians 3. He says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by law. Isn't that true? The reality is none of us are justified by any measuring stick that you use of yourself, others use of you, or God uses of you. You aren't okay with God because you do more than good than bad, because you give to childhood cancer, because you give to the poor. You don't even live up to your own measuring stick of expectation, much less others or God's. We all know that about ourselves. We know we don't live up to even what we want to live up to. Text goes on. It says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by law. The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, the one who does the law, shall live by them. In other words, you can choose to walk through that gauntlet in that covenant with God, and you can choose to say, I'm going to try to live life being good enough and being, being good enough to, 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 to do this and live up to the law, but you'll live by those words. 
and you will fail, and you'll be cursed because you fail. God is so loving, He recognizes that asking us to even make the commitment is too much. So He doesn't ask us to make it. Paul goes on, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In other words, not only did God walk through this covenant in Genesis 15, promising to take the curse of himself uh, upon himself for Abraham and humanity, metaphorically, he actually did it, literally, in Christ. And it wasn't being hung on the cross. I mean, there are lots of people hung on the cross. That's not, that's not the unique part. The unique part of Jesus hanging on the cross is that God placed upon him all of the curse all of the punishment for every single human sin ever, ever in all of creation and in the future. He fulfills the covenant we read about today in Genesis 15. Doing what He said He would do. God keeps His Word. Why? The text goes on, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. In other words, might come to all. He's assuming here that it's come to the Jews, but he's basically saying that blessing is going to come to all so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And what's our faith response to God Offering, when He offers us a covenant with Him? This is where Abraham does show us how to live. Abraham accepts God's promise And he accepts that sacrifice on his behalf. He believes it. He trusts God's love. And because he trusts it, he obediently follows God as evidence that he actually does have faith. Even when it makes no sense. Even when he doesn't see things happening for so long. I mean, sure, you read the story of Abraham. There's plenty of times he starts to step out of that. He messes the whole thing up. But he always returns to trusting God's promise and trust in God's covenant. And isn't that good news? That's really good news. God doesn't take our mistakes when we fail to continue to act in faith and He say, no more, you're done. God doesn't do that. God is still faithful to His promise. Why? Because He never asked us to walk through the gauntlet anyway. So He's not holding us to that standard. He walked through for us. See, we see Abraham's faith response most profoundly in his actions surrounding his son Isaac. It's the pinnacle point of his life and his journey with God. It's in Genesis 2, and we see this shift in the story take place. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham. So expect that. God's going to test your faith. He wants our faith to be strong and enduring, and, and nothing becomes strong and enduring without being tested, right? He tests us in various ways. But here God asks Abraham to do something really difficult. He goes on and says, And God said to Abram, and Abram said, Here am I. And he said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. I mean, what an insane plan, right? I mean, he's waited 25 years for this one through whom God said he would bless the whole nations and create a great nation to bless the whole earth. And then 15 years after he finally comes, God says, sacrifice your son on Mount Moriah. Insane. What does Abram do? The very next recorded words just, they're so understated. It just says, 
So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled a donkey, took two young men with him and his son, and he cut the wood and he burned for the burnt offering, and he arose and he went to the place God told him to do. He just, no questions, he just did it. Just do it. Why? Because he trusted God so deeply. Because the covenant God made with him is still seared in his mind. He has no doubt in that moment. But, but, and I understand, questions, it's, um, what, this is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying questions don't have a place in our faith journey. Questions certainly have a healthy place in discovering faith and growing in faith. But faith is not waiting till questions are answered before you act. For some of us, I know for me at times, my faith has felt stuck. Maybe, maybe you're here and your faith feels stuck as well right now. You've got troubling questions that you don't have answers to or the answers you have don't make sense and it, and it seems to paralyze you from being able to move forward and trusting God more. Maybe your faith is stuck because of struggles you have with certain moral commands God gives that just don't, to you, they just don't make loving moral sense. And, and so you've, you find yourself in this role in life of the immovable cynic rather than the faith-filled doer, the one who risks to move forward. See, this last week in our chronological Bible reading, you got to read about the calling of God, calling Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. Moses asks God a question. He says, well, if I go to the people, who, who shall I say sent me? And how will they know that you have spoken? Do you remember God's answer to him? He says, tell them, I am sent you. I am. Your questions... My questions, the lack of satisfactory answers, don't eliminate the fact that God is. He's the goat. He's the greatest of all of creation. He doesn't answer to us. We will never fully understand Him. And if we think we do, then our God is really small and just a figment of our own imagination. There are many points in our growth as followers of Jesus where the one, uh, 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 discovering the one to grot, it, it, it's going to be obedience. It's the only right and honorable response, even when things don't make sense, even when it's uncomfortable to us. See, God is inviting us into this story to move us past our questions, to respond to, I am, because He is. Regardless of your questions, He is. And what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? Now, this text doesn't tell us what's going on in Abraham's mind, at least when he's got this command to sacrifice Isaac, but we do see his thoughts recorded in the New Testament in Hebrews 11. It says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise, in other words, he's, he's believing the promise. He'd received it. He allowed it to become part of him, the promise. He who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So again, question. Where have you felt like you've been given a promise that's not been fulfilled? You haven't seen it fulfilled. Maybe it's been a really, really long time and it maybe even seems impossible to you. 
Abraham trusted God's word, knew that he could not fulfill God's word on his own and his promise, this promise on his own. And I'm sure that he and Sarah had tried really hard to conceive a child for many years, trying to make that promise come true. And when he couldn't, and then God miraculously did, the covenant experience and the birth of Isaac settled something in Abraham's faith so deeply that he kept believing God's promises. See, even if you haven't yet had a similar powerful experience of promise long awaited, seemingly not going to happen, and then God makes it happen and when, you are, when it's completely out of your control, that's part of the reason God gives us His Word and His Scripture, so that we can grow our own faith through the stories and experiences of others recorded in Scripture. That's the reason we believe relationships are the mission. We encourage you to be in a small group because you need friends who you can talk honestly with about life and faith in ways that's so important because you can borrow on the faith of other people around you and the stories of God in their lives sometimes, even when you haven't yet experienced it yourself. See, Abraham trusted, so he just did what God said. Knowing God had a way to fulfill His promises, even if it meant raising His Son from the dead. As you read the rest of the story, Abraham goes all the way to the point of binding Isaac with ropes and throwing him on the wood and taking his knife and and raising it up in the air, ready to plunge it into the heart of Isaac. And God stops him saying, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from you. And here's where it really becomes important. Being a person who is a Hall of Fame faith person, a person with great faith, isn't about hairy, audacious goals in life. The life of faith God calls us to live is simply not holding anything back in your life from God. This life of faith is about surrender to trusting God's promises, God's goodness, even when you don't understand things, even when you don't know what the goal is, about trusting God and about anything else you feel or think or see in life. God goes on and says, I provided sacrifice for you. Look over here, there's a ram and horns stuck in the thicket. And so he and Isaac grabbed the ram and they, they sacrificed the ram and they worshiped God together. And Isaac and Abraham come off the mountain and years later you see Isaac marries Rebekah and then all of a sudden they have 20 years without a children. I mean, this whole nation building thing, it's not going very good. It's going pretty slow, right? But God throughout this whole story is setting up things to display His power and glory and His goodness. There's, there are some here who need to hear that. Some of us need to hear that. The journey to God's promises in your life may seem disappointing, disappointingly slow, insignificant, frustrating, even hopeless, maybe even impossible. But God is at work. Trust Him. And just obey today and tomorrow and the next day. Whatever He asks you to do. Surrender your whole life, all of it, to His leadership. Don't hold any area of your, back, of your life back. Give Him your job. Give Him your finances. Give Him your home. Give Him your family life. Give Him your dreams. Give Him your identity. Receive His promise. Receive His power. Because you can't do it on your own. 
See, the story of Isaac and the wording of Genesis 2 is valuable to us to, to really understand how God works with us, what faith is, and what kind of response God is working to cultivate in us. But again, the Bible is, is a story first and foremost about God, and God is so amazing in Scripture that all throughout it, He's constantly reinforcing the Gospel, showing us the constancy of who He is and how faith works. Genesis 22 actually parallels John 3.16. In Genesis, God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him. And then we see God Himself fulfill that covenant in the New Testament in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Second Chronicles adds some really cool color to this. It tells us that Mount Moriah, where God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, is actually where Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, where Jesus was condemned and crucified on a cross nearby. The completely innocent God-man, Jesus, taking, himself, taking upon himself the sins of the whole world. Why? Because, John goes on, for God did not set his Son in the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son. See, your salvation and your forgiveness are about just one decision. One decision. And it goes back to this covenant that God didn't ask you to walk through that gauntlet, so it becomes about one decision. Do you trust the promise of God? And do you trust God's sacrifice for you or not? Do you trust that God's promise to make your life meaningful, that His way is the best and most reliable way to find meaning, to find the desires in your life satisfied? Do you put your faith in your action that demonstrates that you really do have faith in Jesus or in yourself? thinking you're the one who walked through that gauntlet and made that commitment. See, on Judgment Day, that will be the sole basis. Your relationship with Jesus will be the sole basis upon which ultimate judgment is made. Not on how good you were, but on whether you trust Jesus and whether your trust was real so that it actually evidenced itself by a desire to take risks, to grow, to obey, to try to figure this out when you fail to get back up and try again. See, so our final reflection, the ultimate goal of God and of us following God. When we put our faith in Jesus, we, like Abraham, get to participate in God's reversal of the Tower of Babel of God taking the chaos and division of sin and that, that's, that that's caused and helping to bring an end to it, bringing unity and love across differences all around us. We see this actually, this Babylon symbol and humanity united against God being fully resolved in a vision that John receives and it's recorded in Revelation 7. He's talking about what he's seeing in the vision and he says this, After this I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever. 
It's not about us. It's not about our contributions to charity. Salvation is solely about the Lamb who sits on the throne. Then it goes on and talks about how the angels and heavenly beings and the people all fall on their faces before the throne and worship, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So be it. God is simply inviting us to worship, to see how loving and awesome He is, to see how good and merciful He is, and to worship Him. So maybe a question to consider. Where do you try to fulfill your desires for security, for belonging, for meaning, for greatness? In your own efforts, not trusting God. Where do you sense you're trying to carry the promise and the desires that maybe even God's given you on your own, waiting so long for God to fulfill His promises and just taking the pressure on you more and more and being more anxious and more driven? I mean, maybe your action step this week is simply go back to Genesis 15 and let sh- put yourself in Abraham's shoes and, and meditate on what that means to you, that God would invite you to a covenant and then not even ask you to commit. He'd commit for you. What amazing love. What amazing grace. And let that change your world. Let it melt all the, the stress and the pressure and the, and, the, and the anxiety you feel about life, about dreams, about goodness, about resolving relationships. Let all that melt away in the fact that He said... I guarantee the promise and I even walk through guaranteeing it on your behalf and I pay the price for any mistake you or anyone else will ever experience. And let that rest become a part of your life. Would you stand with me as we pray? So Holy Spirit, I pray that even now as we stand and we worship and we raise our voices to honor you again, to exalt you, Lord, would you just come by your Spirit and and, and touch each and every one of us where we've carried things, where we've lived with anxiety, where we've lived with a need to perform, and would you just bring rest and a trust in how amazing, how loving, how powerful you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.